Welcome to another episode of Cross-Section, the unofficial podcast for members of the Section on Neonatal Perinatal Medicine of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Neonatal Section represents more than 4,000 neonatologists and clinicians who are committed to caring for the nation's smallest and most vulnerable patients. In Cross-Section, we hear firsthand from some of those individuals about their work. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals featured and do not necessarily reflect the policies of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome everybody. On, on today's cross-section, we'll be talking about necrotizing enterocolitis, or NEC, a devastating disease that increases the burden of illness and takes the lives of many of our smallest patients. What's new today is that we are going to take the fight against NEC to the state house with an innovative program to ensure access to one of the most important treatments for the disease. Helping us to do that and talk about it is a dream team of experts and advocates from our community. Jennifer Canvasser is the founder and director of the Next Society. She established the organization after losing her son Micah to the disease. Jennifer completed her undergraduate studies at UCLA, earned her master's in social work from the University of Southern California, and is currently a doctoral student studying medical sociology at UC Davis. Dr. Ravi Patel is an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in the Division of Neonatology. His research interests are focused on the epidemiology of necrotizing enterocolitis, neonatal transfusion practices, caffeine therapy, and the survival of extremely preterm infants. He serves as a scientific advisor to the NEC Society um, uh, is a member of the International Neonatal Consortium NEC Working Group and a member of the Executive Committee of the American Academy of Pediatrics Section on Neonatal Perinatal Medicine. Um, he's also President-Elect of the Southern Society for Pediatric Research. Ravi also leads quality improvement efforts to reduce the risk of NEC in very low birth weight infants and serves on the Leadership Committee of the Georgia Perinatal Quality Collaborative. Dr. Shettle Shaw is a graduate of Princeton and Cornell and currently serves as clinical professor of pediatrics and neonatology at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital at New York Medical College. You'll probably know Dr. Shaw as one of the core group of go-to people for neonatal advocacy in the US. He has had extensive experience in moving the levers of government and public opinion on behalf of babies and their families. He is the current president of chapter two of the AAP District Two in, in New York is the chair of the Society for Pediatric Research Advocacy Committee and the co-chair along with Lily Liu of our own advocacy subcommittee within the section on neonatal perinatal medicine. I can tell you as well that Shettle never rests in this role. He is tireless and relentless um, in his work. So we are in uh, good hands today. Welcome to everybody. Ravi, I, I guess um, we'll, we'll start with you, Ravi Patel. Um, kid, Tell us a, a little bit about, about this condition that we're gonna be talking about today. We have an audience that is not only composed of clinicians, but of other folks as, as well. So can you explain a little bit about what necrotizing enterocolitis is and, and how we treat it? Sure, and, and John, thanks for the invitation to be here. And it's, it's great to be here with, with Shettle and Jennifer um, to talk about necrotizing enterocolitis. And um, this is a intestinal condition that um, affects babies. It, most commonly occurs in the most premature of our infants, those that <clears throat> are weighing less than 1.5 kilograms at birth, but it can also occur in more mature babies. And, and these infants often present with feeding intolerance. They can have emesis, they can have abdominal distension. And, and, and the thought is that this is characterized by some, some 
uncontrolled inflammation in the intestines that in some babies can continue to progress to where their intestinal tissues die or necrose. And, uh, and that's part of kind of the term necrotizing enterocolitis. We know that about 20 to 30% of the babies who develop this condition go on to need surgery. And up to half of the babies that uh, need surgery don't survive. Um, so this is really a, a devastating condition. And uh, some of the estimates from the US are that it counts for about one in every 10 babies who die in the, in the NICU die from NEC. And um, in some of the work we've done um, within an NIH network, about, it's the most common single cause of death between two weeks and two, two months of life. So it's really quite a devastating disease. Hmm. So, so very, very difficult to, to treat. You mentioned surgery. What, how, how else can we treat the disease or, or prevent it? Yeah, treatment generally involves some bowel rest um, and antibiotic treatment and, and then just hoping for the babies to kind of be able to improve. But even with, with, um, with those conservative measures, some of the babies need surgery and surgery involves re removing the affected and diseased intestines. Unfortunately, treatment is, is not really led to improved outcomes as best as we can tell. So this, this is one of those diseases where the morbidity and mortality is sufficiently high that prevention really is the, is the key in terms of reducing the burden of this disease. And in terms of prevention, what we know from really the best available data, which is from from randomized trials, the, the two approaches that, that have been shown to be probably most effective in prevention are providing breast milk, um, either maternal breast milk, which should be the goal for all of our babies, or, or when it's not available, donor human milk. Um, and then the second um, is providing probiotics to um, preterm infants. This is a little bit more controversial because of some of the concerns regarding quality of probiotics and the products, but, um, but trials have shown that this is another way to prevent NEC. Mm. And um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit or expand a little bit on, on the idea of, of donor milk? Um, what, how is it prepared? How is it made available? Yeah, so milk is, you know, donor milk is obtained from, from mothers who donate their, their breast milk to milk banks. There are a large number of kind of nonprofit um, milk banks that are part of the kind of Human Milk Banking Association of North America, Hambana. And then there are some other for-profit um, providers of, of donor milk. And once this milk is donated, it's pasteurized and the pasteurization reduces the risk of transmission of viruses and, and um, other pathogens. And then it's stored in, and so hospitals can obtain this milk from, from various milk banks. Some hospitals may have a milk bank that's part of their hospital and then they can provide it to their infants. Um, we, we do know from studies that have examined the use of donor milk that it, it, it does reduce the risk of neck. Um, there's a summary of all the available data from last year for Cochrane Review that says it reduces the absolute risk of neck by about 3%. Um, and that those babies, when mother's milk was unavailable, um, when they got supplemented with either preterm formula instead of donor milk, that they had a, they doubled their risk of developing neck. So we have good data that suggests that it's important in reducing the risk of neck. And, and I think part of that is, is why the kind of guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics initially in 2012 from the section on breastfeedings and um, the policy statement said if mother's own milk is unavailable despite significant lactation support that pasteurized donor human milk should be used. And, and that was followed up in 2017 with another kind of more specific statement really that our goal is, is the provision of mother's own milk with donor human milk as a bridge or support while the mother's milk is made available or increasing volume. 
And, um, and I, I think this, the data would support this guidance. So a, a, a powerful preventive intervention, 3% absolute, but up to, up to 50% uh, relative re reduction in the, in the risk of NAP. And this, this has been shown in, in randomized trials, but also in studies where centers switched to provision of donor milk and they found these reductions in NEC. So it's not just in trials, but when centers have adopted the use of donor milk, and I think some of the most compelling evidence with this is, is from California, where they looked at when donor milk became available in the hospital, what happened to the hospital's neck instance. And what they showed is that once donor milk became available, kind of comparing their pre-available period, that they were able to reduce the risk of neck in that hospital by about 2.6%. So pretty substantial given the morbidity of neck. It's relatively uncommon, but when you can reduce it by that much, I think you're making a big impact. Well, that was a, a, a clinical question and a clinical answer. But um, as, as we said at the start, today we're focusing on, on what can be done away from the bedside on, on this general topic as well. J Jennifer Canvasser, we mentioned in the introduction that you had lost your son Micah to neck. You've since been incredibly active in raising awareness and funds and consensus around this terrible disease. Can you, can you start out by telling us a bit about the Neck Society and, and its work? Yeah, and th thanks so much for having me on, John. I'm really glad to be here. Um, so the Next Society is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that get, brings together key stakeholders in the neck community, including um, families that have been affected by necrotizing colitis, as well as clinicians and researchers who are committed to helping us build a more just, equitable world without this devastating disease. Um, and our work mostly focuses on prevention. As Robbie says, it's um, incredibly important. Um, we also really want to elevate the conversation around this disease and show that there really is an urgent need to improve outcomes for these vulnerable infants. Um, I think that our community has generally viewed neck as something that is almost inev inevitable um, and just bound to happen to some babies in the NICUs. And um, we know that now there are ways that we can reduce the risk and we can better protect um, infants who are at risk from this disease. And I think including the use of pasteurized donor milk is just one example. Today, we are focusing on that one particular therapy, um, pasteurized donor milk. Based on Ravi's comments, it's obviously important for treating clinicians, neonatologists and nurses and nurse practitioners to understand the place of this therapy in our approach to neck. But why is it important for, for parents to be knowledgeable about something that seems so specific as, as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, um, I first want to emphasize that it's, it's critical for parents to be knowledgeable and to become informed on issues um, that are affecting their child's health. Um, and so not just on donor milk, but on broader issues as well that's affecting their baby in the NICU. Um, because when parents have um, adequate information, they're in the best position to advocate for their child. Um, they're going to be able to ask questions, become an informed and engaged member of their baby's care team. Parents are the most essential member of their baby's care team. And, and it's really without adequate information, it's really um, dif difficult for families to learn how to contribute and how to be part of that care team. And I also think it's um, really difficult for um, for anyone to value something that they don't really adequately understand. And so if we want parents to value donor milk um, as a life-saving intervention, we really, uh, it's our responsibility to, to help them understand and articulate why it's so important. Can you hear my kids in the background? Is it okay? 
that is definitely okay. And yes, we can hear them. <laughs> the, both of those things are true. <laughs> no, it's great. I was hoping maybe it wouldn't pick it up, but just a little bit more about what the Next Society does. So we really focus on driving research um, and specifically research that is important to patient and families that have been affected by the disease. Um, we're also committed to creating and disseminating resources that both patients and providers um, hopefully find helpful. And as I mentioned, we are working to demonstrate um, the urgency of this work by highlighting how the disease affects um, families and devastates families. And so we um, regularly feature families on our blog and our social media pages to, just to elevate the conversation. And then another part of the Next Society work um, really focuses on um, advocating for improved policies and practices. And of course, um, advocating for equitable access to donor milk is really essential to the Next Society's mission. So, um, so that the the second and third uh, issues, uh, awareness and advocacy, are are what we're doing, what you're doing today, obviously. Um, so can you give us an example of of how how the research is being driven by by the Next Society? What what um, what sort of initiatives do you have in that in that regard? I think one really nice example is, you know, we hosted the next symposium at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor last year, and we had families who had been affected by neck um, in attendance. And what came, what became apparent during this conference is um, just how the label um, human milk fortifier is very ambiguous to parents, and and what does that mean, and and what. Um, just the, the label itself, um, a lot of parents felt um, was misleading. And so we did a research project where we, we surveyed families and providers um, on the label human milk fortifier, and we were able to gain um, some really nice information um, about um, how the, the label human milk fortifier is being interpreted and, and articulated to both um, to parents and in the NICU. Great. Interesting. Um, Shuttle Shaw, I want to bring you in here. Uh, so far, we we have the the uh, research basis for for donor milk. We have the bedside team, in, including the parents, as a core part of that team, in, involved in in decision making and and raising awareness. We we don't bump every therapy up to the advocacy level, though. Why why donor milk? Why isn't this just a bedside issue for for parents and and their treating team? Sure. Um, I think Ravi did a good job of framing uh, the issue. When you have a risk reduction that's about 3%, you really want to make sure that you have a large population of babies that, um, not just because of the individual baby, but of course, if you're going to impact the neck rate within a large state or within a, a given population, you really need to make sure that the, the therapy or the treatment of pasteurized donor human milk is available um, really statewide. And the only way to really do that, I think, is to really make sure that it's adequately paid for. And by that, we mean making sure that Medicaid, for which a large percentage of premature babies um, are in the Medicaid program, and then subsequently private insurers are making sure that neonatal intensive care units can at least break even on donor milk. And that was one of the real motivating factors for us and our work in New York we really knew that if we were going to make sure that every baby was going to benefit from pasteurized donor human milk, at least every baby less than 1,500 grams, which, as Ravi pointed out, is the highest risk group, uh, we really needed to make sure that we were providing as much of an incentive as possible for each of the individual neonatal intensive care units to provide that 
um, to provide that service. I think Ravi no. pointed out before that a lot of the babies who, a lot of the hospitals that are not providing this service uh, nationwide are safety net hospitals. Um, and those safety net hospitals are obviously under more financial pressure than, than hospitals with uh, more resources. So that really lends insight into why the, the coverage has to come from, from payers. So expensive disease, devastating disease, uh, why, why wouldn't payers pay for a therapy that has been demonstrated to be effective? Why, why does this have to be an advocacy issue? Well, it needs to be an advocacy issue for a couple of reasons. The first is that as much as we in the, the neonatal community and in, in the, neck, uh, you know, the neck community really understand the value of pasteurized donor human milk, we need to know that it's not a very common treatment that's known in the community at large. So part of the advocacy for this is an education piece. Most legislators really don't know much about neonatology. They don't know much about premature babies, and they certainly aren't going to know anything about NEC. Um, and much less ways to prevent it with pasteurized donor milk. So one of the things you need to do as you advocate at the state level is really spend a large amount of time educating the key people in the legislature and the key stakeholders so they understand exactly what you're doing and the benefit of it, not just from a, from a saving babies point of view, but from a saving dollars point of view. And I also want to jump in and, and say that without our advocacy, um, pasteurized donor milk isn't going to just happen in, in our NICUs. It's not going to be implemented um, widely without our advocacy, and then that means babies are going to continue to die from neck. And um, I also want to um, mention that it's an equity issue and that families who have the ability to advocate from themselves and to pay out of pocket and to request um, donor milk to even have the knowledge that they need to request uh, that they need in order to even request donor milk. They're going to have access to this intervention um, and families who don't won't have access to the intervention. And clearly that's unacceptable. You know, that's a, that's a very interesting point that, that you bring up. There was some uh, Im important work over the past couple of years by um, CPQCC, uh, the, the California perinatal uh, care collaborative that that showed that there were disparities within a within a unit not just between units and and i think as a community we've been puzzling about how how could that possibly happen you know how can we um, allow that to happen and how how what's the mechanism and you just brought up a, a very good example of of how um, somebody's means can actually affect disparities between one baby and the and the and the um that that baby's roommate in the NICU right yeah, absolutely. And one thing I wanted to mention is that further information does not further overwhelm. Let me say that again. More information does not further overwhelm families. And so I think a lot of providers are hesitant and a bit anxious about providing too much information to families. They don't, over, they don't want to overwhelm them. And in the Next Society's work, we've really been able to um, better understand and demonstrate that, yes, families in the NICU are overwhelmed, certainly, but providing them with more information about uh, their child's health and issues related to their child's health that will affect their baby um, is not further overwhelming. It's actually empowering because they're going to be able to take that information and use it to um, become a more engaged member of their baby's care team. So again, just want to emphasize how important it is to provide parents with information, um, not just about donor milk, but about all um, issues that are affecting their child. 
And then um, further reasons why I think it's so important for families to um, be informed around donor milk is that most parents enter the NICU without knowing that donor milk even exists. I know, um, speaking from my own um, experience, um, when my twins were born at 27 weeks gestation, um, I was just told that they were going to receive formula until my milk came in. I didn't know that pasteurized donor milk was a thing. I didn't know about it. I didn't know. I, so I certainly didn't know to ask for it. Um, and then, you know, a few weeks later, when I was doing my own kind of online research to learn more about what it means to have a baby in the NICU, I felt very misled and deceived by the care team who didn't provide this information to me about donor milk. Um, and so it really affected my ability to trust and form an alliance um, with my baby's providers, because then I was asking myself, well, what other information are they not providing to me? So to be truly integrated in the care team, you you really need to have the same information that the care team has. Yep. And then the other point I wanted to make about why I think it's really important for parents to know that um, donor milk is an option, a really um, effective option, is that it's not uncommon for our NICU babies to die tragically, right? And um, so parents need to know that um, becoming a bereaved donor is a meaningful way to honor their child if their baby does die. Um, and so again, speaking from my own personal experience when my son Micah died from complications of necrotizing intraclase when he was about 11 months old. Um, I had the privilege of doting, donating his milk and I found um, the experience to be um, really fulfilling and um, brought me a sense of peace. Um, and I was able to build a community through the, the milk bank that I donated to the Himbana nonprofit milk bank. I was able to build a community of people who um, weren't afraid to ask about Micah to see his photos and where I could share his story and really honor him. And so I think it's really um, a really meaningful for families who have lost a child to be able to donate their milk back to um, a nonprofit milk bank and, and help babies just like theirs. So if, if um, either bereaved families or or others who who have um, milk available would would like to donate um, for for these purposes how can they go about doing that yeah so himbana the human milk banking association of north america has um, dozens of of milk banks across um, the u.s and each of their milk banks have different programs where they're able to um, support um, bereaved mothers and making the donation and honoring their child in really beautiful ways. And so they could contact their local nonprofit milk bank. But again, I want to put the responsibility on the clinicians and the providers to help families get there because obviously families aren't going to know that that's a thing. They're not going to know that, okay, my baby just died. Let me go donate my milk to a nonprofit milk bank that I barely even know exists. So it's really up to um, the care team to help facilitate that information and make sure that parents know that this is a possibility for them to honor their child in a very meaningful way. Thank you. Um, so it, it, it really is on, on us to, to create awareness locally as, as well as at the, at the national level. Um, Robbie, what, in, in your unit, how, how is that managed? I, I know that you've been, you've been active in, in promoting neck reduction through quality improvement initiatives. And, and how, are, how are you dealing with the sorts of things that Jennifer was, was talking about here? Uh, you know, one of the first things when we realized we really wanted to move the needle on, on NEC, and this was almost eight years ago, was, was um, the introduction of donor milk. And we have three NICUs, and interestingly, one of, one of our, the NICUs that is part of our group is a safety net hospital. And among you know, two of our NICUs that provide donor milk, the safety net hospital has, has not yet started, um, but we're hoping to. But I think it highlights some of the financial challenges that safety net hospitals 
face, and um, and and that was highlighted in, in work that Meg Parker has has done, and and Dr. Parker showed that safety in hospitals, their odds of of donor milk programs was was 0.3, so almost two thirds less likely to have donor milk programs and safety in hospitals compared to that, and I think that's one of the challenges. But we we realized when we looked at the data that, and I think it's even stronger now that. Donor milk is an important component of ways to prevent neck. I, I think it's important to realize it's not the only strategy and, um, and that there's other things that, that should go along with that. Um, but, but really that provision of first mother's own milk when possible and then donor milk as a bridge or to supplement is, is I think one of the key preventative strategies for NEC. And, and so over time, we now have a median of a, 100% of our very low birth weight infants receiving um, human milk in some form. And, and that's been, I think, part of a, um, it hasn't gotten rid of neck, so we haven't gotten to zero. I think there's definitely more work that we need to do to try to understand neck, to try to get to where we can really reduce it substantially. But, but we've, we have seen over time um, reductions in the instance of neck. And I think that's parallel to what other reports from the U.S. have been showing in terms of reductions in, in NEC um, over time. Shuttle back back to New York um, and back to the to uh, pulling the levers of of advocacy and government outside of the NICU. Tell tell us about your about the work that you've been doing to uh, ameliorate some of these problems with the access to to donor milk uh, at the state level. Sure. So New York's sort of advocacy journey through getting Medicaid and private insurance coverage for donor milk in babies who are less than 1500 grams really starts the way all good NICU ideas start, which is, you know, on call between the hours of midnight and, and 4 a.m. When, uh, when we were in the neonatal intensive care unit, and as Jen described, we had um, certain NICUs in New York, which were allowing mothers to purchase their own donor milk, sign a waiver form, and have that be administered to their baby in the intensive care unit. And that was really... Um, that was really the way a lot of NICUs in the state at the time navigated the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation about pasteurized milk, um, donor milk being the, the second most preferred means of feeding babies. The problem with that, of course, was that you, know, you had two babies in the same room um, from different rungs on the socioeconomic ladder getting different treatments. And, and as you mentioned, even though we know now that there are uh, some uh, ethnic disparities in the way neonatal care is administered within individual NICUs. I think at the time we were a little naive and we said that, well, you know, health disparities are really something that occur in maternity care and in maternal care and that occur in adult medicine. But once everyone enters our neonatal intensive care unit, we treat them all the same. And this was really one glaring failure uh, in terms of treating them all the same. And then when we realized that, we really felt like we needed to make sure that there was at least some avenue for neonatal intensive care units to get uh, reimbursed for the donor milk that they were going to provide. No one was asking NICUs to turn a profit on donor milk. No one was even asking NICUs to recoup the, you know, the fairly heavy startup costs it takes to build the infrastructure to track the donor milk um, in, in terms of infection or potential contamination. But we really wanted to make sure that they weren't going to lose significant amounts of money. And the only way to do that was to make sure that, that Medicaid uh, was really paying for it. But the good news with Medicaid is that, you know, Medicaid is a federal state partnership. 
So that means that states get to decide with input from stakeholders like physicians, like parents um, who have children who've been affected by a disease and can decide what they want to cover. So it took us a process of about two years, two rounds of the legislature, and we were able to work with one of the major scientists in the legislature, even though he's not a medical scientist, uh, he is in the assembly, uh, the go-to person when you use a lot of data. He's actually a geologist by training, but you know that's the way legislatures sometimes work. Um, and we were able to work with several new mothers who were in our New York State Assembly. And they formed the group that really helped amplify the messaging that we were providing and really help move donor milk ultimately in both chambers of the New York state legislature. And that's extremely important because you can do a lot of the education, but you first need to have a legislative strategy where you target key legislatures, key legislators in both chambers of your state government who are willing to sort of adopt this and help amplify it uh, throughout their colleagues um, or across all of their colleagues to make sure that it gets covered. And we were able to get it covered um, in the budget, which was great because um, now it sort of lives in perpetuity. It wasn't sort of a, a time-limited intervention. There, there's so much in, in to, to learn from this initiative. I, I think the generic lesson of, of how to find a sympathetic group of legislators who, who understand either data or understand the, the um, issues that parents might be facing and bringing those together as the nidus of, of change in the legislature is, is, is applicable to probably all sorts of our advocacy issues, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tar- targeting the legislature and figuring out who's going to be the real legislative champion uh, is something that you can do really in conjunction with your local AAP chapter. Most of the chapters have been doing advocacy work and working with their state governments for years. So they really have committed partners people who tend to champion children's health issues, and they can reach out to them. And if they aren't going to be the ones who want to make this um, the focus of their legislative agenda, they certainly can point you to like-minded colleagues who are willing to do this. Mm. For us, it was extremely important, not just that we had people who understood data, but that we had people who really understood the New York State budget and all of its intricacies, because those were the people that fellow legislators look to when you hear the comment about something not just saving babies, but also saving money. A lot of people tend to come to the legislature and say, if you invest in this, you will wind up saving money. So they wind up hearing that argument a lot. Um, But when you have the person who is known in the legislature as being the expert on the budget, really echoing that message, it's really something that, that tends to ring truer to a lot of people who are going to be voting on the issue. So you you got you got a line item on there that is held going forward, is safe going forward to free up funds to pay for this. Practically speaking, what did that mean for babies in in the state? Have you seen the use of donor milk increasing? Is it is it required to use donor milk? What's what's the concrete outcome of your advocacy? Sure. So uh, at the time, we had only one to two of our, our uh, regional perinatal centers, which are our major level four and level three NICUs across the state using donor milk. And within two years, every single one now mm. provides some option for pasteurized donor human milk. Mm. But I think there are a couple of messages here. The first is, you know, passing the law is sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's a milestone. It's not the finish line. 
And we spent a lot of time working with the regional perinatal centers and working with this, um, with the Department of Health and with the state government once the bill was passed in the budget to really figure out a way that we could implement regulations that worked for everyone. Um, neither the state government nor every NICU wants to submit a different bill every single day for every single baby on donor milk. Um, that's just a bureaucratic nightmare. But we spent a lot of time making sure that it was something that was reasonable that everyone could live with. The other thing that's also important is if you work within the Medicaid system, um, and it's important because in, at least in New York, a, a lot of babies born less than 1,500 grams are born into the Medicaid system, the lar a large percentage of them. After a couple of years, you, you, you create this system where the state is paying to cover something that private insurers operating in the state are not. And that winds up irking the state, <laughs> the state fairly significantly because they feel like, why are we covering something when private insurance, which is sometimes considered the gold standard, is not covering it. So once you pass the bill, once you create implementation regulations that everyone can live with and that are practical and make sense, it's also important to spend the next year or two after making sure that private insurers come along. Um, some private insurers follow the example of Medicaid, but some don't. And the ones that don't sometimes need to be pulled into this kicking and screaming. But the good news is that the state wants to do that because they're paying for something that the private insurers aren't. Did that happen in, in New York? Were you able to, uh, to bring along the private payers as well? Within, within a year. And it, tends to, it tended to happen fairly quickly, partially because within that first year, we were able to demonstrate significant cost savings. And that's really when we realized that we have New York as one example. Um, by the time New York had sort of started this advocacy journey, there were several other states, um, Missouri, California, um, Texas, and the District of Columbia that had already had donor milk regulations in place. But when you think about the landscape of where babies are born, you know, having a handful of states is great, but you really need to make sure that the majority of the country is covered because this is not something I think is, that's gonna happen on the federal level which is why the section on neonatal perinatal medicine created the, the advocacy toolkit um, in the hopes that if someone in a state that does not have this legislation on the books wants to become a champion for it, they don't need to recreate the wheel and go through all of the hoops that we had to go through in New York, Texas, Missouri, District of Columbia, and California. They can build on what's already, um, on what's already been done. So say that I live in one of those states, and, and I do, that uh, wants to do, do this. Uh, tell us about the advocacy toolkit. What, what does it involve? It's, it's donor milk specific, um, correct? Yeah, it really does have everything a advocate would really need to try and move the needle on donor milk in their state. Um, so it includes a, a list of like-minded coalition members, because this is obviously not just a neonatal issue. As Jen has pointed out very eloquently, it is a parent issue um, because use of donor milk often increases the use of mother's own milk eventually throughout the NICU stay. It is a midwife issue. It is an obstetrics and gynecology issue. It is a March of Dimes issue. It is a major academic medical center issue. It is a safety net hospital issue. And bringing all of those people to the table so that when you walk into a legislator's office, you're just not one neonatologist or one health system. 
but you really have a broad coalition of like-minded people across the state really improves your advocacy outcome and really improves your ability to get legislators to, to take this on. So there is guidance in there about people that you can reach out to to help form this coalition. The other thing it does um, is it really prompts you to decide for whom donor milk should be covered. And that's really important because different states have different regulations. In New York, we decided to focus on babies less than 1,500 grams and babies with congenital anomalies of the intestinal tract. There are other states that are only using um, babies regardless of their birth weight, but only through the duration of their NICU stay. So it's important for everyone to be on the same page because you don't want there to be mixed messages when you go to the legislature and you need to define all of that before you go. The other thing you need to do is um, there's a sample memo in there that in includes up-to-date references and language about why donor milk is important. And that also includes a very back of the envelope uh, calculation sheet where you can look at the number of births in your state and come up with a rough amount, a rough estimate of how much money you would save. So you can bring those cost calculations and bring that memo signed by all these like-minded partners to your local AAP chapter, identify those key legislators who are going to be the champions, and then start interacting with them to try and see if you can get legislation, uh, legislature, a, a bill drafted. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics does not specifically endorse uh, a sample bill, um, sort of a, a template bill that you would go to your legislature with and say, this is kind of what we're thinking about. But there are links to the New York state law and links to the California law, because sometimes having the ability to work off something that's already been done helps the people in your state office of bill drafting uh, really help get something done fairly fairly expeditiously. There's also advocacy resources for people who've never met with a legislator and might feel intimidated by the process to be able to get uh, virtual online advocacy training about how to distill the message. Because if you go, you know, talking to a legislator is not the same as talking to a colleague. Um, you're not going to get as far as you would talking to them with data as you would giving them a story or talking to them about Jen's son or talking to them about patients in your intensive care unit. Um, mm -hmm. the, the data is all in the memo, but the story is what's going to stick with them and create the passion for legislation. I was just going to jump in and add that, yeah, I think that the parent voice is perhaps the most impactful tool for affecting change within our community um, because parents really recognize and can articulate the urgency and the significance of this issue um, in a really powerful way. So I think it's, it's just really critical for us to engage um, the parents and elevate their voices where we can and join our advocacy efforts and calling for equitable access to donor milk. Does the Next Society have state-level um, uh, part, parent partners who could be identified by, by folks who are taking this, this on? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Next Society is active across the U.S. and even globally. So yeah, we have um, parents that are involved in either nearly all 50 states or all 50 states, and we could definitely um, work to identify advocates um, to elevate this issue, absolutely, yep. Okay, um, and Shettle, you, you mentioned two important sort of classes of resources. One are generic advocacy training resources and, and then this donor 
uh, milk toolkit where can where can our listeners find those if they want to take concrete action sure the donor milk toolkit is available on the american academy of pediatrics section on neonatal perinatal medicine website in the advocacy tab of the website the virtual advocacy resources actually were recorded through work with the Pediatric Policy Council, which has representation from the Association of Medical School Department Chairs, the American Pediatric Society, the Society for Pediatric Research, the Academic Pediatric Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. So those um, introductory sort of lectures on how to engage with legislators live on every single one of those organizations' websites in one form or another. Um, within the AAP, they're also located in the Community Pediatrics Training Initiative tabs, which, uh, which within the academy is a, is a group of people that are really dedicated to advocacy. And it tends to be um, utilized a lot by general pediatricians. So I think it's important for us to know that while obviously we're neonatologists and have a significant, significant access to patients, who have been affected by NEC and have significant expertise with NEC, we don't necessarily have to be the only people um, who are involved in this. General pediatricians obviously understand what necrotizing enterocolitis is um, and should feel free to get involved. And sometimes recruiting them can actually even broaden the base of people that you can bring uh, to bear in terms of trying to move legislation in the state house. And obviously, they're they're also looking after these patients. Uh, this is not just a neonatal disease; it's a childhood disease for many many children who survive the initial condition. I was just going to add that the Next Society has um, many families that have children who have survived neck that are involved, as well as young adult neck survivors who still into their adulthood are um, affected by the long term complications of necrotizing intracolitis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Ravi, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, what might be a tough question. What would you put next on the list, either within the domain of neck or outside it, as something that we could use the same sorts of tools that Shuttle has been talking about today to to treat? That's an interesting question, John. And um, you know, within within NEC, I think the challenges we have this therapy probiotics that's been tested in a number of trials. And yet there's this challenge in the way that the kind of regulatory agencies see this um, as a dietary supplement and maybe some advocacy around, you know, in NEC in terms of understanding how we could make this accessible and and make clinicians comfortable with its use um, as a supplement and and what's needed to move, um, move it forward. And I know there's been groups that have come up with kind of ways in which we can um, improve the quality and, and, and kind of the trust of people with kind of what's available in terms of, of um, commercially available products. And, and then, then there's also the need for more research and there's clinical trials ongoing of, of drug formulation. So that, that's what I would put in terms of specifically for um, NEC. You know, you know, thinking back more broadly in terms of how do we improve neonatal outcomes I think there's so many social determinants of, of the outcomes that we just were not well suited to address within the walls of our NICU by ourselves. And that there's, there's need, need for um, advocating for, um, for interventions that, that might be very useful to our families and patients outside of the walls of the NICU, um, access to 
to adequate prenatal care, um, access to kind of some specialty care after discharge in a timely manner, um, th therapy, you know, those types of things I think are very important and are, are a very big challenge for many of our patients, at least, at least in the hospitals where I work. So th those are just the two that come up, you know, right off my, um, off the top of my head. You know, there's a quote that we all have uh, two jobs. One is to take care of patients. And the second is to, is to improve the way we take care of patients. And one of the things Shettle taught me years ago was that the third job is to advocate for changes to our society to take care of patients. And, and I, I think it, it seems that from what you've all been telling me today, that's an incredibly powerful tool that we have as, as clinicians. Jennifer, la last word to you. Uh, if you could activate our community in some way, what would be on your wish list for us to, to take on? I guess it would be to see, for, for clinicians and providers to be able to see parents as partners and to really see them as, as, as essential members of their baby's care team and to view their role as not just providing care to the infant, but really as as a mentor or even a coach to parent to to provide them with those those skills that, and information that they need to to care for their own baby and to become part of their baby's care team, um, because I think once we do that, many other things can fall into place. Um, but I, I think that's a really big um, hurdle that uh, many of our NICUs still haven't been able to adequately um, achieve in terms of, of seeing parents as partners. So the other um, thing I wanted to mention about the issue of advocating for pasteurized donor milk at this time is that I think it's really relevant right now during this pandemic when many parents are being restricted from accessing their newborns in their child's bedside and the baseline trauma and stress of, of just being in the NICU is being exasperated just by the pandemic it, itself and that can affect access to mother's own milk and milk production and, and so forth. So I, I really think that not only is this kind of baseline urgent issue, but it's a very timely issue um, in light of the pandemic that we provide equitable access to donor milk for all of our, our all of our infants. Terrific. Well, thank you to all three of you for, for being here. This has been so uh, informative, but also in, important in, in uh, I think, the, the next steps that we can take against this disease. So uh, all the best to all of you with your, your efforts. Thank you and, um, for those and for today.